European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 37, Issue 19, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lucher. Syncope and Sudden Cardiac Death, Some Answers to Clinical Challenges. Sudden loss of consciousness is a dramatic and potentially lethal event. Unfortunately, the optimal evaluation of syncope remains controversial. Current practice varies considerably among different countries, and potential benefits of extensive evaluations and the high costs involved are often put into context with the questionable clinical benefit of such approaches. Although history-taking has been standardised, only a few of the recommendations from international syncope guidelines deal specifically with appropriate measures in the emergency setting. For example, the different European Society of Cardiology guidelines referring to various causes of syncope do not address this issue. This could be due to limited evidence on how to stratify the risk and decide on disposition of such patients in the emergency setting. Therefore, the current opinion, Syncope Clinical Management in the Emergency Department, a consensus from the first international workshop on syncope risk stratification in the ED, by Giorgio Constantino from the Ospedale Maggiore Policlinico in Milan, Italy, is a timely contribution to existing literature. The document represents a consensus paper of experts in the field who provide a four-step conceptual model for the emergency department decision-making in syncope. 1. Is it syncope? 2. Is there a serious underlying condition identified in the emergency department? 3. If the cause is uncertain, what is the risk of a serious outcome? 4. For a given risk profile, how can these patients be best managed in the emergency department and what evaluation and restrictions are required? In spite of all the uncertainties in the acute management of syncope, this approach may help to improve risk stratification and later management of patients with sudden loss of consciousness. Not all patients with syncope reach an emergency unit. Many die suddenly out of hospital. In Western countries, one in five deaths in individuals between the age of 20 and 80 years occurs suddenly, most commonly caused by cardiac arrest due to ventricular arrhythmias. Despite progress in treating such victims, most importantly by immediate defibrillation, educating laypersons in arrest recognition and appropriate measures and distributing automatic external defibrillators, reported rates of out-of-hospital survivors are rarely better than 10%. Fred Lindemans and colleagues from Device Research Consulting in Sittard, the Netherlands, discuss the issue in a second current opinion entitled Improving Survival After Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest Requires New Tools. They note that survival rates as high as 70% can be reached in casinos with automatic external defibrillators and trained staff, confirming once more that time between arrest and defibrillation determines survival. Wireless communication with external devices and appropriate software, smartphones, would allow for automatic alerts to be released to bystanders and emergency medical services and provide a GPS location when patients suffer life-threatening arrhythmias. This could substantially reduce delays, now caused by witnesses not knowing how to act, and telephone conversations with emergency service professionals. It would also turn unwitnessed cardiac arrests into witnessed arrests, improving their presently minimal survival chance. 
shortening delays would not only improve survival rates, but also reduce the incidence of cerebral damage, preventing costly long-term medical care. Obviously, improving accuracy of arrest detection and defining indications for receiving automatic arrest alarm systems remain challenging. Model clinical testing suggests cost-effectiveness similar to other accepted device therapies. Thus, the authors remind us that given the years of potential life lost, reducing cardiac arrest mortality must be a major public health priority. They suggest that only technical solutions promise to reduce delays between arrest and defibrillation, an approach that certainly deserves widespread evaluation in the near future. Myocardial ischemia, due to an acute coronary syndrome, is a major cause of arrhythmias and sudden death. Ischemia commonly occurs due to a flow-limiting obstruction of a major coronary artery. However, patients without obstructive coronary artery disease also may experience ischemia, for instance due to coronary microvascular dysfunction as a result of different causes. The management of such patients is still unclear. In an AHA fast-track, a randomized placebo-controlled trial of late NA current inhibition, ranolazine, in coronary microvascular dysfunction, CMD, impact on angina and myocardial perfusion, by Noel Barry Metz and colleagues from the Cedar-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, USA, tested the efficacy of the short-term late-sodium current inhibitor, ranolazine, in patients with angina myocardial perfusion reserve index, and diastolic filling as endpoints. In a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled crossover trial, 128 patients with evidence of coronary microvascular disease as assessed invasively or non-invasively were randomized to either short-term oral ranolazine 500 to 1,000 mg twice daily or placebo for two weeks. Angina was measured by Seattle Angina Questionnaire and SAQ7, Diary Angina, Stress Myocardial Perfusion Reserve Index, Diastolic Filling, and Quality of Life. Unfortunately, outcomes did not differ between ranolazine and placebo. Of note, peak heart rate was lower during pharmacologic stress in those receiving ranolazine, and the change in SAQ7 weakly correlated with the change in myocardial perfusion reserve index. The change in myocardial perfusion reserve index also predicted the change in the SAQ quality of life questionnaire. In a sub-analysis, patients with low coronary flow reserve below 2.5 had an improved myocardial perfusion reserve index, lower SAQ angina frequency, and a better SAQ7 questionnaire. The authors conclude that in symptomatic subjects with no obstructive coronary artery disease, short-term late-sodium current inhibition was overall not effective to relieve angina. Importantly, however, changes in angina and myocardial perfusion reserve were related, supporting the notion that strategies to improve ischemia should be further tested in these subjects. The paper is accompanied by an insightful editorial by Gaetano Lanza from the Università Cattolica del Sacro Cuore in Rome, Italy. Patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy have a high risk of sudden death, but may also experience syncope due to the pressure gradient in the left ventricular outflow tract, 
particularly during stress or exercise. Although for the latter condition, surgical myectomy has good results in experienced hands, it does require opening of the chest. Thus, two decades ago, alcohol-induced catheter-based septal ablation was introduced as a less invasive strategy. In an ESC fast-track long-term clinical outcome after alcohol septal ablation for obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy results from the Euro-ASA registry, Joseph Veselka from the University Hospital Motol in Prague, Czech Republic, noted that although the outcomes of single centre and national registries have been published, the long-term survival and clinical outcome of the procedure is still debated. The authors therefore studied long-term outcomes in the as-yet largest multinational registry, i.e. the Euro-ASA registry, encompassing 1,275 highly symptomatic patients with median follow-up of around six years. The 30-day mortality after alcohol septal ablation was 1%. Overall, 13% of the patients died during follow-up, corresponding to an all-cause mortality of 2.42 deaths per 100 patient years. Survival rates at 1, 5, and 10 years were 98%, 89%, and 77%, respectively. In multivariable analysis, independent predictors of all-cause mortality were age at the time of alcohol septal ablation, septum thickness, and New York Heart Association class before alcohol septal ablation and the left ventricular outflow tract gradient at the last clinical visit. Alcohol septal ablation effectively reduced the left ventricular outflow tract gradient from 67 millimeters of mercury to 16 millimeters of mercury and NYHA class from 2.9 to 1.6. At the last visit, 89% of patients reported reduced dyspnea with New York Heart Association class below 2, which was independently associated with the left ventricular outflow tract gradient. Thus, in highly symptomatic patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, alcohol septal ablation was associated with a low periprocedural and long-term mortality and durable relief of symptoms and reduction of left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. The paper is accompanied by an editorial by the inventor of this procedure, Ulrich Sigvart, from the University of Geneva in Switzerland. So far, pharmacological glucose lowering interventions have shown little or no benefit on measuring of clinical outcomes in diabetic patients. However, the EMPAR-REG outcome trial, published in the New England Journal of Medicine last September, using an inhibitor of the sodium glucose transporter in the renal tubules, for the first time demonstrated a reduction of cardiovascular mortality. In the third AHA fast-track clinical research paper entitled Heart Failure Outcomes with Empagliflozin in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes at High Cardiovascular Risk, results of the EMPA-REG outcome trial. David Fitchett and colleagues from the University of Toronto in Canada now present the results of the EMPA-REG outcome in patients with heart failure. In that trial, 7,020 patients were randomized to receive empagliflozin 10 mg, empagliflozin 25 mg, or placebo. Of those, 10% had heart failure at baseline. Heart failure hospitalization, or cardiovascular death, occurred in a significantly lower percentage of patients treated with empagliflozin 
i.e. 5.7% versus 8.5%, hazard ratio 0.66, corresponding to a number needed to treat to prevent one heart failure hospitalization or cardiovascular death in 35 over 3 years. Importantly, the effects of impagliflozin were consistent across subgroups. Impagliflozin improves other heart failure outcomes, including hospitalization for or death from heart failure from 4.5% to 2.8%, and was associated with a reduction in all-cause hospitalization from 39.6% to 36.8%, resulting in a hazard ratio of 0.89. Thus, in patients with type 2 diabetes and high cardiovascular risk, empagliflozin reduced heart failure hospitalization and cardiovascular death with a consistent benefit in patients with and without baseline heart failure. Thus, although not part of the most recent guidelines on diabetes, the use of these novel drugs in diabetics should be seriously considered in clinical practice. The paper is accompanied by an editorial by Carl Svedberg from the Salgrenska University Hospital in Gothenburg, Sweden. Acute coronary occlusion with symptoms of infarction and sudden death may not only occur in ST-segment myocardial infarction, but also in stent thrombosis. Stent thrombosis is a rare but serious complication following percutaneous coronary intervention. Thus, in the definition of myocardial infarction, it was assigned as a separate category, i.e. type 4 infarction. The mechanisms of stent thrombosis are complex. Analysis of thrombus composition from patients undergoing catheter thrombectomy may provide important insights into the pathological processes leading to thrombus formation. In a final paper, an ESC basic and translational hotline, histopathological evaluation of thrombus in patients presenting with stent thrombosis, a multicenter European study. Stefan Masberg from the Ludwig Maximilians University of Munich in Germany performed a large-scale multicenter study to evaluate thrombus specimens in patients with stent thrombosis across Europe. Overall, 253 thrombi were analysed. One-third had been obtained from patients with early and two-thirds from late stent thrombosis. One-third stemmed from patients that had received bare metal stents and two-thirds from those with drug-looting stents. Thrombus specimens displayed heterogeneous morphology, with platelet-rich thrombus and fibrin-fibrinogen fragments most abundant. Mean platelet coverage was 57% of thrombus area. Leukocyte infiltrations were hallmarks of both early and late stent thrombosis, with neutrophils representing the most prominent subset. Leukocyte counts were significantly higher compared with a control group of patients with thrombus aspiration in spontaneous myocardial infarction. Eosinophils were present in all stent types, with higher numbers in patients with late stent thrombosis in sirolimus eluting and everolimus eluting stents. The authors conclude that in a large-scale study of histological thrombus analysis, from patients with stent thrombosis, thrombus specimens displayed heterogeneous morphology. Recruitment of leukocytes, particularly neutrophils, appears to be a hallmark of stent thrombosis. The presence of NETs supports their pathophysiological relevance. 
eosinophil recruitment suggests an allergic component to the process of stent thrombosis. The paper is accompanied by an excellent editorial by Lorenz Reber from the Bern University Hospital in Switzerland. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.